Uh, if you have Bibles, uh, go ahead and make your way to Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. It's, uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, page 398 is where that starts. And I didn't introduce myself, uh, but my name is Matt Luloyan, uh, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here. So if we've never met, uh, just uh, welcome to you, and it would be an honor to get to meet you even after the service. Don't hesitate to come up and find me. We'd love to, to get to know you and, and to shake your hand. I don't know for you what, um, what your yearly rhythms feel like, what your year calendar and schedule feels like, but for me, uh, September actually feels like more of a start to a new year than January 1st ever does. Uh, you know, summer's ending, school is starting, our oldest daughter is about to start preschool this year, so that's a big milestone for us and our family. Uh, a year in life, a new, a new year in life and ministry in the church uh, is kicking off. So if that pertains to you guys as well, if it's helpful for you to kind of put a stake in the ground and mark a new year, I'll say Happy New Year uh, to all of you. And from my vantage point uh, as a pastor, every time that we start a new year like this, a new ministry year, a new fall, it's important to be reminded of the story that we're in, and it's also important to be reminded of what's at stake in that story. As Christians who, who live in this world that God has made, who live in this world that God loves, we have light and playful moments, right? It's good, it's right, it's important for us to have fun, Uh, it's important for us to rest and to celebrate and to enjoy the good things that God has made. We also have heavier and weightier moments, and it's important in those to remember that there's this massive eternal work that God is doing, and that you and I are caught up into that massive eternal work. And so today is going to feel more like that second kind of moment, the heavier and and weightier moment. Because Nehemiah chapter 1 is a passage in Scripture that I would characterize by the word sobriety. It's a a wake-up call kind of passage. Something has gone uh, horribly wrong, as we'll read. And yet, in the midst of that sobriety, there's a lot of hope. There's a clinging to the promises of God. There's a longing for God to, to show up and to work on behalf of his people. Next week, uh, we'll kick off our fall series. This fall, we're going to be studying the book of 1 Corinthians together. And in it, we're going to consider uh, the beautiful mess that is the church. So the title for our series is The Beautiful Mess. And what we are are acknowledging as we say that is that God has done and is doing beautiful work in the lives of his people, in the community of the church. But that also, as he does that beautiful work, it's really messy. Uh, And as we'll read through 1 Corinthians, the church at Corinth is a church like the church today, like our church, riddled with issues, riddled with problems. So I'm particularly excited about studying that book together this fall because really the whole thing, the beauty and the mess, serves as an invitation to each and every one of us to jump in uh, and to be part of the beautiful mess. And so today, kind of thinking about that series coming up next week, I just want to try to set the stage for that. Because if you and I are going to jump in and to engage in that beautiful mess of the church with our whole hearts, uh, with our whole lives then we, I think, really need to see the importance and the stakes. If the church is just, like well mentioned, if it's just a social gathering, then it's not worth it. And if the church is just an activity uh, for your resume, something to keep you busy, there are far more convenient and easy activities for you to to do with your life. In in high school, uh, I joined the National Honor Society. Any other National Honor Society folks in the room? Uh, That means different things, I think, in different schools. Here's what it meant for me. I filled out an application. I went to one meeting, and I got to wear a fancy cord around my neck at at graduation. That was the extent of my involvement in in National Honor Society. And at graduation, wearing that cord, it meant very little to me. Why? 
Why? Because it was just something for me to put on my resume. It, it, it was something that cost me very little, but looked really good. And I'll be the first one to confess, that's my human nature. I want to do what costs me the least, but looks the best on the outside. And, and whether or not that's a good way to participate in National Honor Society, we can debate that. But more important, that's, that's, nowhere, that's no way to share in the church that's been established by Jesus. And so with this new year, we need a fresh reminder of the role that the people of God are called to play in the world. We need a fresh view of the ways that we miss the mark as the church. And we need a fresh view and a renewed sobriety in that. And then into that renewed sobriety, we need renewed hope. So may God stir that in each of us as we look at Nehemiah chapter 1 today. You can follow along with me as I read. It's only uh, 11 verses long, so I'll read the whole first chapter there. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God of mercy, you have promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, I pray that you would speak your eternal word that does not change. And enable us to respond with gracious promise to your gracious promises, with faithful and obedient lives. We pray this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So really two things for us to consider from Nehemiah chapter 1 today. The first one is the summons to hopeful sobriety. And the second one is praying with hopeful sobriety. Summons to hopeful sobriety and praying with hopeful sobriety. So first let's talk about the summons to hopeful sobriety. Let me just set the scene for us a little bit as to what's going on in the backdrop of of Nehemiah chapter 1. In 587, 586 B.C., uh, the city of Jerusalem is destroyed by Babylon. And then a huge number of the Israelite men and women from this southern kingdom of Judah, where where Jerusalem is, are sent into exile into the kingdom of Babylon. 
About 50 years after that, the Persian Empire comes and they conquer Babylon. And the Persian king, a man named Cyrus, begins to allow these exiled Israelites to return to their homeland in Judah, the southern kingdom of of Israel. And so some return at that point, um, some stay behind, not all of them return. And in all of that time, there's also been a small remnant of people that have remained behind in Judah that were never sent into exile in the first place. Now, fast forward from uh, that that return that started happening about another 100 years to 445 B.C. And that's where we begin Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is an Israelite who has lived his whole life under Persian rule. And his life is, from all that we can tell, is relatively good. Uh, His life is relatively comfortable. He's the cupbearer to the Persian king, a man named King Artaxerxes. And then... In walks this man, this Israelite man named Hanani, along with a few other Israelites from Judah. And it totally wrecks Nehemiah's world. Nehemiah inquires about life back in Judah, about the remnant of people that remain there, to which Hanani replies, The remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Two really big things that we will miss if we, if we don't know the context and the backdrop of the story. Number one is that Jerusalem is the city of God. Right? It's the place where God dwelt with his people in the temple before it was knocked down and destroyed by the Babylonians. So it's a huge deal for the people of Israel that, that Jerusalem lies in ruins. Right? When any group of people loses their capital city, that's a big deal. Uh, it's even more so the case for the Israelites. Because right? this is the city that God has chosen in which to dwell with his people. And so without Jerusalem, without the temple, there's a fracture of their experience of the presence of God. The second thing that's important for us to know is that from the time that Jerusalem is destroyed to the time that Hanani shows up on Nehemiah's doorstep, at least 140 years have passed. 140 years. Just to put that in perspective, 140 years ago in this country... The president was a man named Ulysses S. Grant, as in the Civil War hero Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, The U.S. government was busy sending all the Native Americans to reservations, and Alexander Graham Bell was applying for his patent for the telephone. So think about how much has happened in the 140 years in this country since that. That's how long has passed from when the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is destroyed, to this moment in Nehemiah chapter 1. So I don't think it's possible to overstate how wrong this picture is that the most important city for the people of God is in ruins and that no one has done a thing about it for 140 years. So God then, via Hanani, delivers Nehemiah this summons to sobriety. And as we read it, it hits Nehemiah hard. Whatever comfort, whatever enjoyment he was experiencing up to that moment is immediately wiped away by the gravity of what he's just heard. Now, we'll come back in just a moment to how Nehemiah responds to that. But what might a similar summons to sobriety sound like for us today? There'd be some really important differences. First, that it wouldn't be about a particular city or a particular geographic location. For us now, the Holy Spirit dwells in those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in the church. That's how the presence of God dwells with his people today. So I think a similar summons to sobriety would actually pertain to the church, the condition and the state of the church. In the church, where have the figurative walls been broken down? In the church, where have the figurative gates been destroyed by fire? 
1984, uh, a man named Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Disaster. It's a great title for a book, isn't it? The Great Evangelical Disaster. Uh, and I know, you know, and maybe for you this is the case, the word evangelical has a lot of baggage behind it. Uh, ultimately, it's just really a shorthand way of referring to Christians who look to the Bible as the ultimate source of authority for life and faith and practice, and also Christians who really emphasize that we need a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what evangelical really refers to. Uh, Schaefer himself wasn't evangelical. But he wrote this book, it's one of the last books he ever wrote, pointing out how some things have gone terribly wrong within his own tribe. And I think it's really what a summons to sobriety in our day might sound like. So he says this in that book. Make no mistake, we are locked in a battle. This is not a friendly gentleman's discussion. It is a life and death conflict between the spiritual hosts of wickedness and those who claim the name of Christ. It is a conflict on the level of actions between a complete moral perversion and chaos and God's absolutes. But do we really believe that we are in a life and death battle? Do we really believe that the part we play in the battle has consequences for whether or not men and women will spend eternity in hell? Or whether or not in this life people will live with meaning or meaninglessness? Or whether or not those who do live will live in a climate of moral perversion and degradation? Sadly, we must say that very few in the evangelical world have acted as if these things are true. And rather than trumpet our accomplishments and revel in our growing numbers, it would be closer to the truth to admit that our response has been a disaster. So we might maybe call, rightfully so, Francis Schaeffer like the Hanani of 1984. And although this is, this is 30 years old, I think it's only become more true in the years since. And what adds even more sobriety, at least in my perspective, to these words is that Francis Schaeffer, in his decades of life and ministry, like he wasn't the guy that like sat behind the, the, the fortress of Christianity and like lobbed grenades out into the world and yelled at people. He's known primarily for his winsome and gracious and humble engagement with culture. And so when I hear his words, what I hope we all hear uh, is a summons to sobriety for us. There's some things that have gone terribly wrong in the church. And our tendency, and there's a real dangerous precedent that was set uh, in the time of Nehemiah 2,500 years ago, is that as God's people, we are prone to remain content with things that have gone horribly wrong for way too long a period of time. 140 years for them, at least 30, if not many more than that, for, for us today. So what's gone wrong? We could probably make a really long list, um, so let me just mention two things, and we'll talk a little bit about those. One is, and, and Will, I think, mentioned that uh, before with um, talking about J.I. Packer and the introduction to his book. One is this. It's a shift away from God at the center to self at the center. Some research that was done just this past year says that now the vast majority of Americans view self-fulfillment as the highest moral good. Right? That's, that's self at the, the center. And there's been a shift even within the church of looking to God as the center of authority, from that to looking to me and myself as the center of authority. To use some theological terms in this, there's been a shift in the church from orthodoxy to what's sometimes called neo-orthodoxy. And the best litmus test for, for that shift is really what is our view of God's word? What is our view of scripture? Is scripture true in just some kind of vague sense of the word true? Or is Scripture true in that it is the inspired Word of God, 
that it is without error in all that it affirms, that it is necessary to know God's revelation of himself, and that it serves as our ultimate authority in faith and in in practice. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot this morning about inerrancy in depth. We'll have to save that for another day. But we do need to see, and this is what I hope you see in this, that there's uh, far more at stake in this than might be readily apparent. These aren't just different theological categories, different theological views of Scripture. These different views of Scripture inevitably change our understanding and our practice of obedience and faithfulness to Jesus. Whatever we believe about Scripture is going is to trickle down and affect our, our understanding and our practice of obedience and faithfulness to him. And with a different view of Scripture comes a major shift, maybe subtle at first, where God's word in Scripture, as he's revealed it to us, is not at the center of authority anymore, but I am at the center. And at the center now is really what's sometimes called an inner witness. Like, I believe these things are true just because I kind of have a sense that they are true. What then flows out of that are all kinds of erosions in faithfulness to Jesus. Because at the end of the day, if we're looking inward to self as the center of authority and not outward to God's authority, here's what will happen. The freedom of the gospel will erode into autonomous freedom. The freedom of the gospel will erode to autonomous freedom, which means that anything that sounds like restraint, uh, anything that sounds like self-control, that's now restrictive, that's now oppressive. It means that the definition of love erodes to mean unconditional support or blanket affirmation. Right? So if you challenge me, if you disagree with me, if you tell me I'm doing something wrong, then by definition you are not loving me. Right? And underneath um, all of the uh, marriage, gender, sexuality discussions that are happening in our day, and, and those are complicated, complex issues, I'm not trying to simplify those, but underneath those, there's a, a much more fundamental argument between gospel freedom and autonomous freedom, between love and and blanket affirmation. Those things erode. Another thing that erodes, self-care erodes into self-obsession and selfishness. Self-care is a good thing. Self-care is a really good thing. Why is it a good thing? Because God values us as whole human beings. He wants us to rest. He doesn't want us to work ourselves to death. But that same God who values us as whole human beings and says rest also says consider others better than yourselves. So when we shift God out of the center and we put ourselves in the center instead, self-care becomes selfishness in a heartbeat. It takes no time at all to become selfishness. And so then rather than asking God to cultivate a heart of service and a heart of mercy in me, one in which uh, I rearrange my life in ways that cost me and bless and serve others, I'll now use the filter that I used in high school for National Honor Society. What costs me the least and looks the best? What's convenient for me? So we have to recognize the the massive shift that this is. We have to recognize that what, what might just sound like a doctrinal debate, a doctrinal conversation, underneath that, really, obedience and faithfulness to Jesus is at stake. And we can't accommodate uh, these two views as being consistent with one another because truly they're not. They're not consistent with one another. And there are a ton of places that we need to be attentive to this and we need to, to wrestle with this. But because a good number of you are here in the room and will be here in the room now and as the years go on, let me just speak for a moment to those of you who either have been or are students at Messiah. Because from my understanding, as I've, as I've talked with many of you about this, this neo-orthodoxy idea, that exists in your, on your campus. 
and, and even in the Bible department and some of the, the things that you will learn on campus there. And from my experience in the conversations I've had with you, the prevailing message that you will hear is that there's really not, it's not that big a deal. There's not that big of a difference between those who believe Scripture is without error and those who believe the Bible is true but riddled with errors. And all I want to say to you this morning, there are good men and women on campus at Messiah. I know some of them who are teachers there. No, no judgment about that. All I want to say to you is recognize this is a lot bigger deal than it is often made out to be. And though it might seem subtle, there's this, there is this big shift underneath this from God at the center of authority to self at the center. And so I know for those of you who are at Messiah now navigating this as college students in college classes on a college campus, that's hard to do. Um, let us walk with you if that's helpful. We have some alum from Messiah who have wrestled with these very things. It would be a joy to walk with you through that if you would let us do that. Second huge thing uh, that's gone wrong, and I'll go faster on this one, I promise, uh, is there's been a shift in, on the fo- in the church from focusing on quality to focusing on quantity of people. And in other words, you, you heard this in Schaefer's quote earlier, evangelical churches like to revel and celebrate their growing numbers over the quality of substance of the kind of disciples that they are actually seeing. It's one of the first questions that I always get asked about as a pastor and a church planter. What's the size of your church? How big is your church? It's, if it's not the greatest uh, indicator that most people use for success of churches, it's at least in the top three of those. Now, let me be clear about this. Um, this is not a shot in any way, shape, or form at large churches. You can be uh, self-righteous about the small size of your church just as much as you can be proud about the large size of your church. And the point of that is, is that we're consumed by quantity rather than quality either way. There are some large churches that do quality relationships really well, and there are some really small churches that don't do quality relationships at all. It's just like 20 or 30 self-righteous people whose shared unity is based on the fact that they hate large churches. <laughs> and as a pastor, you're like, yeah, sign me up for that. That sounds like a great group of people that I want to hang out with. But I, I hope uh, Liberty Church grows. I hope that more men and women and children come to know Jesus, come to believe in him as their Lord and Savior. I hope more men and women and children get cared for well and served well and experience tremendous growth as followers of Christ here. But rather than focus on quantity, the call of Christ is for us to commit to quality of relationships with each other and then the quality of how we equip and send one another into the world that God loves. So you heard, you've heard us now in the last couple of weeks talk about some of these shifts in home groups, and this is a huge reason for that. Right, this is why we've taken hours of time this summer to pray and to plan about how home groups can really uh, further this pursuit. It's not a win for us just to have a lot of people's names on a list of the people involved in groups. Right? We need quality relationships. We need depth of relationship more than just the social connections, more than just participation to kind of fulfill a church obligation. So David invited you to this last week. Will invited you to this this morning. Let me be another voice to invite you to this. Uh, Step into this with us. We need you in this. We hope that you want something like this. We would love to pursue quality relationships with one another, not just have more people in groups for the sake of being in groups. Okay, we could make a lot longer list, but these are a couple big areas where I think you and I need this summons to sobriety. So I would invite you, let these present-day summons wake you up from just comfortable routines and, and allow them to move you to respond with sobriety. Okay, what does that look like? How do we respond with sobriety? Let, let's talk second, what it looks like to pray with hopeful sobriety.
There's a progression here for the rest of Nehemiah chapter 1 to Nehemiah's prayer. So first in verse 3, he weeps and mourns. That's where he starts his prayer. His heart breaks for the state of Jerusalem. His heart breaks for what he hears about the remnant of God's people who live there. And what's interesting about Nehemiah is that it's not just for a fleeting moment. right? It says that he does this for days. He weeps and fasts for days. If you're like me, it's not all that uncommon for us to read something on the news, to mourn something that's gone wrong in the world, maybe for a few minutes, maybe for a few hours, but after that to forget about it and just kind of move on with our day. We've got bills to pay. I've got kids at home. I know many of you do. We've got stuff to do, so we move on quickly. Nehemiah weeps and fasts for days. So there's this persistence. There's this commitment that could only come by being truly affected by the state of things. So a question for us to consider this morning. Are we ever wrecked by the state of the world? Are we ever wrecked by the state of the church as much as we are wrecked by the state of our own lives? Because when you and I go through a really hard season in our lives, when things are really bad in our lives, it consumes us. And without even really needing to think about it or put together some kind of plan to pray and and mourn, we're going to mourn and lament. Nehemiah's ongoing mourning here shows he truly is affected. He truly cares not only about his own life, but about God and about God's people. Okay, as he mourns, then he moves into confession. He confesses his own sins. He confesses the sins of his family. He also confesses the sins of all the Israelite people. So verse 7, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So Nehemiah here, he's not a, he's not a priest uh, in the formal sense of the word, but he's playing a priestly role. He's interceding on behalf of all of God's people. He's asking God to hear and to forgive. So again, Nehemiah's concern is not just limited to himself. Now, is he responsible for the sins of all the other Israelite men and women? Can he control their actions and what they do or don't do? Of course not. And actually, most of what he's confessing, the sin of the people of Israel that led them into exile in the first place, he wasn't even alive when that happened, so he contributed nothing to that at all. But even though it's not his to own in an individual sense, it is his to own as one who cares about God and cares about God's people. But a really important thing that we learn from Nehemiah's example, do you hear and see the difference in posture, the difference in tone between blame and confession? He recognizes something's gone horribly wrong. Blame in that moment sounds like this. It sounds like, look what you have done. Look what everybody else has done. How could it have gotten this bad? Confession says, Look what we've done. Look what I've done. It doesn't allow us to remain at a distance, separated from things. And so when you and I are summoned to sobriety, the temptation will be for us to blame. Who's to blame for the bad state of things? But I would say we learn from Nehemiah a good lesson that it's far better to be moved into confession than it is to be moved into blame. Nehemiah mourns, he confesses, and then what does he do? He pleads. God, listen. Let let your ear be attentive. God, look. Let your eyes be open. God, remember your words to Moses. Grant mercy in the sight of the king. Give me favor with one of the most powerful men in the world. Work and accomplish your purposes through this Persian king. And give success to these efforts. So these are bold and faith-filled prayers from Nehemiah. 
And I want you to consider just how amazing that is. This is a man among subjected people living hundreds of miles from the city of God, praying that through him and through a pagan king, God will grant mercy and success to right this 140-year wrong. What gives Nehemiah the audacity to pray that way? What allows him to transition so smoothly from weeping and mourning to confessing the ways that people have rejected God, to praying boldly with confidence that God will listen and God will act on his behalf. It's the identity and the promises of God. Nehemiah can respond with hope in the midst of the sobriety, in the midst of the heaviness, because God is God. And as he says here, he is the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He's the one who keeps covenant and steadfast love with his people. He's the one who is faithful to his promises, both his promises to scatter the people when they reject him and his promises to regather them from the farthest reaches of the earth when they turn back to him. And we miss the entire point of Nehemiah 1 if we miss this, right? Because though he gives us a great example to follow, Nehemiah is not the hero of this story. His prayer isn't a formula for us to get success in our endeavors, even when our endeavors are trying to move into something that breaks the heart of God. Nehemiah can pray this way and be hopeful in the midst of things that have gone so horribly wrong because God is God and because God has made promises and because even when God's people are faithless, God remains faithful. He can do no other. He cannot disown himself as the faithful covenant-keeping God. Likewise, why can we respond with hopeful sobriety in our day? It's because God is our God and we are his people. And even beyond what what Nehemiah knew, and here's the gift for us, even beyond what Nehemiah knew, the advantage that we have is that in the 2,500 years since, God has only demonstrated his faithfulness more and more. And nowhere is this clearer for us than in the incarnation, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As the author of Hebrews says, Though Jesus, or through Jesus, we have even better promises. We have even better promises than Nehemiah had access to in that moment. And as the Apostle Paul says, all of these promises of God find their yes and amen in him. They find fulfillment in Jesus. So from our vantage point, we see even more fulfillment. We have even better and more precious promises to rely upon from God. And that's the source of our hopeful sobriety. It it is impossible for you and I to be more grieved about the things that have gone wrong than God. We can't out-mourn him. It's actually God's own mourning that calls us into sobriety. We're not just offended for the sake of being offended. Everyone in our world today is offended all the time about something. We're not just offended for the sake of being offended. We're caring about the things that grieve God's heart. When the church shifts God out of the center and puts self in the center, instead, when the church focuses on quantity instead of quality, God is grieving more in that moment than we ever are, than we ever could. So his grief compels us to be actually affected by these things. It compels us to intercede. It compels us to confess these things. And at the same time, it's impossible for you and I to be more confident than God than all of the, that all of these wrongs will be made right. right God himself has promised as much. Right? We can't out-respond God. We can't outwork him to make those wrongs right. 
And this is the reason for our hope in the midst of sobriety. This is the reason that we, like Nehemiah, get to pray and are invited to pray bold and faith-filled, confident prayers for God to bless the work of our hands, to hear our prayers, to grant success and to give mercy. God will continue to gather His people. He will continue to redeem. He will continue to forgive. And in Jesus, He is making all things new. So may we remember the story that we are in as we start this new year. May we remember the story that we are in and may we remember the stakes of this story. May we see where the walls have been broken down, where the gates have been destroyed by fire. And may we mourn what has gone so horribly wrong, both in our world and in the church. But in our sobriety, let us pray with confident hope. And in this new year of life and ministry together, let's move into this world with hopeful sobriety, knowing that the great and awesome Lord God is our God, and that we are his people, and that he will accomplish all of his good work according to his promises. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are the great and awesome God of heaven. You are the God who keeps covenant and who is faithful to us as we've sung about together this morning. Wake us up to the things that grieve your heart. Move us into the world that you love with compassion and graciousness for others as we ourselves are so dependent and needy upon your compassion and graciousness toward us. Make us people that care about the things that you care about, that pray bold and confident and faith-filled prayers because you are a God who, who is working and who will accomplish all that you have set out to do. Use us in that endeavor. And strengthen us each and every day, each and every moment. And I pray that as we come to this table this morning, that we are again met by your spirit, met by your empowering work in our lives and sent back into this world that you love. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.